time for another episode of Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson, and this podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Find us online at artuk.org and on social media at artuk.org, spelling out the word dot for our social channels. And please use hashtag Art Matters Podcast on Twitter if you want to join the conversation about any of our episodes. Also, can you subscribe to us, please? I want you to be first to know about our new episodes. Uh, With this series, we like to have taster discussions on the intersections between art and popular culture. Today's topic is tattoos, and I'm joined by Dr. Matt Lauder. Matt is a hi. (laughs) Matt is a director of American Studies and lecturer in contemporary art at the University of Essex. His research area is Western tattooing from the 17th century to present, and he recently had an exhibition on British tattoo art at the National Maritime Museum, Falmouth. The next iteration of this exhibition opens at Tor Abbey in Torquay. I hope I'm saying that right. Welcome (laughs) to the series, Matt. Hello. (laughs) Good to have you. Thank you for having me. So with each episode, at the very beginning, I like to start out with the basics. So, you know, tattoos are such an amazing form of artistic expression. They're found across cultures for centuries. And I just wondered if you could give us the super brief intro uh, into tattoos and in their historical context. Yeah, so um, tattoos are basically as old as humanity. There's some discussion amongst um, archaeologists as to kind of what comes first, tattooing or cave painting. Um, The earliest kind of direct evidence of tattooing we have um, is uh, a preserved mummy that was dug up uh, in the Austro-Italian Alps um, in the 90s. Um, that specimen has become known as Otzi, Otzi the Iceman. Nice name. Um, and he, <laughs> a nice name. And he's kind of reliably dated to about 5,000 years um, uh, BCE. Um, so he, uh, you know, is, is basically this kind of nomadic, from nomadic kind of late Bronze Age culture, and he has um, kind of little like tally mark tattoos all across his body, largely on his joints, actually, um, crosses and dashes and stuff. Um, it's difficult to know exactly what, you know, what their function would have been, whether they were decorative or status indicators or something. Um, some uh, archaeologists have kind of argued that they might have been medicinal or magic, given that they're on kind of sites where he has arthritis and stuff. Um but we can then kind of infer, I think, tattoo practice much older than that. Um, so he's the oldest kind of bit of preserved skin that we've got. Um, there are some similar, um, some, some mummies from around the same period, slightly younger from um, South America, from Chile. But we can kind of infer tattooing in things like um, uh, decorative art and sculpture, like all the way back um, you know, really into um, into the Neolithic, probably um, on on things like um, humanoid statues in, in Egypt and things like that that are marked with um, things that we can kind of infer. I think that are tattooing. So, and we find, as you said, we find tattooing in kind of pretty much every culture around the world, or at least some kind of skin marking technology, um, scarification. Mm. Uh, we find in, in in African cultures quite often where tattooing just doesn't show up very well under dark skin. But it's it's basically, I think, the kind of very, very short summary for me is it's 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 almost, you know, kind of foundational to human culture, this desire to permanently mark your skin. Right. And I guess because in in more recent history, I think um in in my, certainly in my mind, I feel like and I'm saying this as a tattooed person, but uh, <laughs> I feel like maybe early in the 20th century there were more or even 19th century there were 
ideas of like the type of people who got tattoos. And then on the Art UK website, we have a painting of a sailor getting a tattoo. And yeah. I just wonder if, if that's a lot of people's perceptions of like the history of tattoos. I specialize in the history of um, kind of British and Western tattooing. And so a large part of kind of what I'm interested in is exactly that um, kind of question, actually, in some senses, the gap between what I've been able to reveal with some historical research and what I think people sort of think they know about the history of tattooing. Um, and that kind of idea that you touch upon, that there's some kind of present sort of tattooing is now something that it wasn't in the past and there's some kind of break that we can define between something like class or gender or, um, you know, whether or not we consider tattooing an art form or not. Um, I've been collecting headlines from the media, from newspapers, um, which kind of make this claim that there's some kind of present and some kind of past in, in tattooing, this idea that tattoos are not just for sailors anymore and shock horror, everyone's yes. getting them. And uh, I've got examples of that exact headline uh, in the British and American press from every single decade since the 1860s. <laughs> so um, so, there, so every I decade think... they're, they're newly not for certain types of people anymore yeah yeah exactly so every, every sort of this constant novelty right. right journalists um and uh and kind of i guess maybe society as a whole are kind of constantly surprised that there are these people doing these strange things to their bodies but um i think what the what the kind of historical record seems to reveal um in a kind of you know, modern western context at least is actually one of presence rather than you know absence and, and, and reappearance um you know there's my favorite one is from I mean, I've got tons of these, but there's, there was one from the 80s, from 1981, which is just after I was born, um, which says, oh, you know, everyone's getting tattooed now. Like, even lecturers are tattooed these days, right? People come up to me and say to me, oh, you're a tattooed, you know, university mm -hmm. lecturer. How did you get away with that? And I had to show them that headline from, you know, nearly 40 mm -hmm. years ago. Um, and then there's a great one from Vanity Fair that was published in 1926, um, and it's basically this, uh, this journalist writes, um, tattoos have passed from the um, savage to the sailor and from the sailor to the landsman and are now to be found beneath many a tailored shirt, mm. right? And they interview this tattooist, um, a guy in Brooklyn, and he's moaning that, like, you know, the good old days of being an art tattooer are gone because it's too hip and trendy now. And, like, all kids want today is diving girls, and I'm a real artist, right? And that was 1926. That's interesting. So, because what is what is an art tattooer? What does that mean? Well, so this is this is something you know. One of the sort of big moves of my research has been to try and work out how art and tattooing fit together. How a kind of canonical sense of what we might think of as art and this kind of strange practice that you know is on living bodies and um, doesn't last very long. It lasts, as one tattoo artist said, for life plus six months. <laughs> okay. um, uh, uh, so I try to look at how these things fit together because I think we have a kind of, um, you know, culturally maybe have a kind of instinctive idea that tattooing is is art-like. You know, it involves kind of making marks on a surface um, and, you know, technically it's quite kind of analogous to other forms of, you know, art, of mark making, painting and mm -hmm. drawing and stuff. Um and um but of course there are things where it, you know, it doesn't fit it's very difficult although not impossible to hang a tattoo on the wall of a gallery for example um we have some interesting um problems with kind of subjectivity when we think about the human body as a as a canvas um but i think on a very kind of basic level 
because tattooing kind of feels like an art form and it gets called body art and, and things like that, tattooists have been making their claim as artists, as professional artists, as long as they've had tattoo shops, right, since the 1880s. Um, one of the guys that I write about a lot, uh, Sutherland MacDonald, um, he he said he, he claimed to have coined the word tattooist as a contraction of tattoo artist because tattooer just made him sound too much like a plumber or a bricklayer. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, and that was in the 18, 1880s, 1890s. Um, so yeah, tattooers have been, tattoo art, tattooers, tattooists, tattoo artists, whatever you want to call them, have been kind of making their claim as artistic professionals for a very long time. Um, but the kind of wider art world haven't, hasn't really taken that very seriously. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I certainly wouldn't want to be tattooed by someone who wasn't very artistic when you think about it. Um, so you yeah. certainly want, it's, it's both a skill and a talent, isn't it? At the, at the same mm. time. Uh, do, do you find many connections between kind of the tattoo world and the fine art world or fine art practices? Yeah, so a lot of um, tattooers actually kind of resist the label artist, actually, funnily enough. Um, they find, you know, the kind of uh, this 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 attempt, if you want to call it that, by kind of mainstream art um, institutions to kind of bring tattoos within its walls a little bit kind of patronising and a little bit kind of cynical mm. um, and kind of resist that label of, of artists. And, and a lot of tattooers I've spoken to um, and I'm friends with actually consider themselves more crafts people than than artists right um because tattooing has a kind of craft sense too i mean it's, again it's that, that distinction between art and craft is quite difficult to, to make a kind of bright line between but um by some accounts tattooing is kind of more more like a craft than an art um but as you know i always want to sort of say really in, in my research and always make this um sort of very clear that i'm sort of not interested in in sort of defining art in such a way that it includes tattooing um you know I think, if anything, the, the history of art has proved that any time you know, art historians and art critics and, art, and philosophers of art come up with a definition of what art is, an artist will find some way to yeah. kind of to break their definition. So kind of what I want to say instead is that um, tattooing kind of makes sense when looked at through the lens of, of art history. So using the tools that art historians use to think about painting and sculpture and video and performance and photography and all these other things, um, is, a, is a kind of good way of looking at tattooing compared to the way in which academia, at least, and perhaps popular culture too, have more conventionally looked at um, tattooing. So most of the academic work on tattooing will think about it through the lens of criminology and psychology and medical history and, and, um, and uh, uh, you know, anthropology, ethnography. Um, and all of those, I think, miss a lot of the kind of really interesting things, the most important things about tattooing, which are its you know, which are the, the images themselves, the tattoos as images, I suppose, and also this relationship between the artist and the um, person getting tattooed, which in, in lots of criminological accounts, for example, is entirely absent. You know, there are whole books purportedly about tattooing written by psychologists, which don't actually mention the tattoo artist at all. So I never thought about tattooing from a psychological standpoint yeah i mean that that's almost the entirety of the existing literature to be honest um very very few in the history in the history of, of our history in the historiography of our discipline there's been almost no mention of tattooing at all um and where there has it's been brief um or to my mind insufficient so i sort of feel quite lucky as a scholar insofar as i've got this huge open goal in a way um yeah. to kind of go oh who are the interesting art i mean in some respects it's quite conventional who are the interesting artists how are they working? How do technological changes influence 
their their praxis um who are they selling their work to you know what's the visual culture landscape the political landscape and you know um cultural background that they're coming from how does that affect the images that they're producing like all those very straightforward art historical questions um mm-hmm. like just haven't ever really ever been asked with any kind of sufficiency or 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 professionalism um of of this art form before so it's quite good fun to be able to start to do that so who are some of the figures that would be big artists or tattooists in the tattooing world who are the da Vinci's of tattooing if if there are such a thing yeah so um in my exhibition that just just closed up and is sort of going on tour um I which is a history of British tattooing from the um, 17th century to the present day try and kind I've tried to kind of do a um almost a kind of iconic artist from each uh sort of decade I suppose period of time as we go through um, and we start off um, with a guy called Sutherland MacDonald, who I mentioned uh, briefly a minute ago. He um, so he began working in the 18, uh, 1880s. He opened his sort of tattoo studio, if you want to call it that, in about 1894. Um, and he he was the first person to kind of establish himself as a professional tattoo artist in this country. Um, and really amazing guy. Like if you look at um, some images of his work, and there are plenty online these days that you can Google, um, the, the, the kind of quality of his work, um, largely, I mean, lots of his works copies of very famous paintings or paintings that his customers would have been familiar with at the time. So he was copying kind of French salon painting and, um, uh, and Japanese prints. But he was also doing some quite creative work. And I've been able to kind of, um, sort of reverse engineer some of his practice and try and work out, you know, some of his creative process and how he's how he's developing work. He was inventing tattoo machines. He's the first tattooer in the UK to have a kind of patent for an electric tattoo machine. And he was like figuring out new colours. So he talked in one interview about inventing a yellow ink that was so toxic. He, he tried it out himself and it was so toxic that he had to slice chunks out of his arm. Oh, God. So, oh God. so the kind of Wild West early days of Victoria. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he was working in the Hammam Turkish baths in London on German Street. Um, he boasted of a kind of very, very blue-blooded clientele, including the king. Probably hadn't tattooed the king. That was probably just a bit of a an empty an empty brag. But he certainly had lots of kind of high end clients, um, mm. and made made a good good amount of money. Um, and then we can kind of I think sort of go through the 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 century, and we end up with um, oh, people like I mean Cash Cooper, who was this incredible tattooer from London, and then later in Manchester, who was a bit of a wild man. He sort of famously had a pet puma for a while in his tattoo shop <laughs> um, and then had a pet eagle. Um, but he was uh, working in the kind of 50s and 60s, taking a lot of influence from American tattooing, um, producing, a, injecting a lot of humour and a lot of kind of um, uh, avant-gardism into his practice. Someone told me that this may well be apocryphal, but certainly the story was that um, Cash was one day tattooing. His customer said, oh, Cash, how did you tear the, tear your trousers? You've got a hole in your trousers. And he just stopped tattooing his client and used the machine to colour in the hole on his leg. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, as a kind of marginalised art form, there's there's lots of characters like that um, uh, you know, who are pretty wild and pretty pretty interesting. But they're all always, funnily enough, I think, making a an argument for the status of their industry. Um, I mean, the other... The other figures I think it's really important to mention in this context is a guy called Les Scoos. Oh, 
Uh-huh. And Les Goose was from Bristol, um, and he he was working in the in the fifties at a time when tattooing was pretty stigmatized in Britain. It, it, it really kind of that modern day stigma, I think, had really taken hold. Um, but Les was there. He ran a, uh, he ran an institution called the Bristol Tattoo Club. Um, he used to go and speak to universities. He used to go and speak at um, uh, the art colleges in Bristol in the fifties and sixties. And he ran the first um, kind of exhibition of tattooing in an art gallery in the UK in 1972 um, at the Camden Art Centre. So, you know, for all my kind of boasts of sort of doing lots of revolutionary work in, in 2017, you know, Les, Les got there 40, 40 years before me. So um, one thing you touched on um, across each of these artists was kind of trends a little bit. And I just wonder, do you find that the tattooing trends in the West ever mirror the kind of art trends of the time where impressionistic things are happening in tattooing or, or something yeah i think so fun funnily enough tattooing is quite a conservative art form so in a strange way tattooing can kind of certainly in the early part of the century reflects quite conservative taste more than a kind of radical aesthetic agenda i suppose so um mcdonald who i mentioned um, he was really pioneering Japanese style tattooing in Britain. And, and that really matches very, very straightforwardly with the kind of things that are happening in broader visual culture. Right. So at the end of the 19th century, Europe's kind of mad for Japanism. They're importing Japanese uh, textiles and um, ceramics and prints. And so, of course, the people who are getting tattooed also want Japanese style tattoos. Mm. Um, English language guidebooks to Japan in the 19th century kind of suggested that, hey, don't buy any of that tat that's in the in the um in the tourist shops like don't buy any of that um silverware it's all kind of tourist market nonsense like if you want real japanese art get a tattoo um and as i said the other thing he was kind of doing a lot of was copying prints um either sort of french salon paintings or prints by artists who were kind of doing things like you know hunting shooting fishing scenes you know eagles and duck hunts and things when you say um, copying prints, do you mean literally like a an entire image, like an entire print on the back, or just parts of it? Oh, so yeah, so whole whole back pieces that um, were copies of um, uh, so Archibald Thorburn, who was this kind of uh, or, um, ornithological painter, um, very kind of popular amongst the kind of you know upper middle class um, sporting set. Um, Thorburn's gallery was opposite where McDonald tattooed on German Street, and loads of his tattoos, um, McDonald's tattoos, are basically copies of Thorburn drawings of eagles and peregrine falcons and ducks and stuff. Wow. Um, and then, and then, yeah, we find you know I've got images of copies from um, sort of popular prints at the time, as I said, Bougereau and uh, people like Falero, but also really sort of classic images like Guido Rini's um, Eke Homo, the kind of, you know, that famous image of, of Christ with the crown of thorns, like that becomes a very iconic tattoo image very early on. Um, and you know, funnily enough, there isn't there isn't much or isn't any that I found kind of copies of you know. There's no Van Gogh tattooing or or Renoir tattooing yeah. happening yeah. in London in the in the 1900s. But there's quite a lot of kind of um, uh, of copy. I mean, using print culture um, as as source designs for tattooing in a much more kind of straightforward conventional sense. And then, you know, as we move forward in the century, we find in the 1930s, like Mickey Mouse tattoos. Mm, okay. um, uh, that still happens now, I think. <laughs> still happens now. And portraits of film stars. 
Um, and then into the nineties, you know, into eighties, we're getting punk um, uh, graphics and and uh, and much more kind of what I call postmodern tattooing, where kind of everything goes. So yeah, and what and you know, even if we go before the professional era, or if we go back into the eighteenth century um, and the early nineteenth century, we're finding tattoo images are kind of matched in things like sailor handicrafts. So the images that we find recorded as tattoo designs, hearts and swallows and suns and moons and mythological images and stuff all of that's also visible in things like scrimshaw and um, and like vernacular carving practice and uh, things like that so i always want to kind of make the claim that actually if we believe these claims of kind of art history that we can you know we can use the history of art to tell a story about you know people and their lives um that the art that people choose to tattoo on their bodies is probably the most important or resonant art to them and actually you end up with a much if you look at the history of art in, in broad terms through the lens of tattooing you get a much different story about you know the kind of images that were important to people than we might do if we look you know walk through the tape yeah. for example you know so when the time is running away with us so I, I wanted to touch on one last <laughs> aspect of this and that's the kind of display of tattoos and that's in two mm. ways I'm wondering one the people who are getting these tattoos, are they ever seen by anyone? And then I'm also wondering, kind of in a museum context, how are how are tattoos displayed? Yeah, I I, I, have, I was sort of wrestled with this problem when I was doing my PhD, because lots of you know, quite positive accounts of tattooing um, in kind of contemporary philosophical writing were like, you know, tattoos are the one art form that, you know, you can never have on the wall of a gallery. And um, they kind of break up, they're completely kind of, you know, uh, uncommercial and you can't buy and sell them. And then I was walking around the Welcome Collection mm-hmm. in London one day um, and spotted a tattoo, a little piece of skin um, in oh a little God. display case <laughs> sitting in the, permanent, in the permanent collection. Okay. And it and it turns out that that one little piece is part of a much bigger collection of over 300 preserved skins um, collected in around 1924 and dating from you know, back into the, the late 19th century. Um, and it turns out that's quite a that's quite a common thing. My, my colleague Gemma Angel's work um, deals a lot with this history of kind of removing tattoos from the body and displaying them. And there's lots of good kind of um, horror fiction <laughs> from over the centuries, which deals with this stuff. Um, Roald Dahl. I really didn't think that was where that was, that answer was going to go. I <laughs> thought it was, I thought you were going to be talking about photograph. I mean, that is, that's, yeah. Wow, that's nuts. So I, we, we wrestled with this in, with, the, with the show in, in Falmouth. You know, we, we, we obviously have to kind of do a story with, you know, largely with photography and with drawings and with flash and stuff. But, yeah, we had some skins on display um, in, in, in the collection, um, which were from the Welcome Collection that are on display down, down in, in, in Cornwall. We had um, a pair of um, eyes that had been tattooed on someone's buttocks. Some poor French. That is hilarious. Uh, soldier <laughs> from from the late nineteenth century. Yeah, and you know, there there it's funny. As I said, there's lots of kind of fiction which deals with this. Roald Dahl's story, skin sort of posits that you know, oh maybe there's this guy he's got a tattoo and it's by a famous artist, and all these collectors want to buy this work because it's the sort of lost original by this by Chaim Soutine actually is the artist that they that he inserts in the story, and he says, well you can't buy my tattoo. Um, and the, the collector says, "Oh, I'll pay you to come and come and work at my villa." Um, and so the guy takes up the uh, takes up the offer. And then, of course, uh, a new work by Chime Soutine shows up, quote, nicely framed and heavily varnished. <laughs> um, uh, and there's another there's another story by a, a, from the 30s by a guy called Saki who imagines that this guy gets tattooed in Italy 
And then because it's Italy has these kind of very um, strict laws on cultural heritage and patrimony that his the tattoo on his back is declared a, a work of art and therefore can't be exported from Italy. So he's not allowed to leave the country. <laughs> That's, that is hilarious. <laughs> so were people um, going back further? Because yeah. now people, um, you know, wear short sleeves or what have you and mm. expose more of their body so tattoos are visible. But maybe going back when people dressed more conservatively, were these tattoos really seen by anyone or was it for just kind of your personal satisfaction that you would get these? So, so this is something I've always been interested in. And I think a large part of this amnesia that uh, we were talking about a minute ago, this idea that tattooing is always new is partly to do with, you know, the fact that tattoos weren't particularly visible. You know, the, um, at least two kings of England, George V and Edward VII were both tattooed, but you know, you, you will search in vain for any photographs or paintings of them. Yeah. Um there's a story of uh, a minor aristocrat, aristocrat called Edie, who was Marchioness of Londonderry. And she'd been tattooed in Japan about 1900 as sort of the done thing, as I was mentioning. She got a whacking great dragon on her leg. Oh, gosh. But of course, but, yeah. But of course, if you're, a, if you're a kind of wealthy aristocratic woman in the Edwardian period, you're not showing off your ankles to people, right? right. Um, in the 1930s, sort of skirts, skirt heights are kind of hitched up sufficiently that... Um, people were kind of horrified. They're like, oh my God, you've got this dragon on your leg. Like, oh, you know, Duchess is tattooed. And she said, I've had it half my life. You just never saw it before. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, as I, as I mentioned, there's this stigma that kicks in in the 50s in the UK. And I think part of that is to do with, you know, there's lots of tattooing after the war. Lots of people have been tattooed. But if your bank manager had a tattoo, you would never see it as a member of the public. You know, his, his partner would see it. It would be visible. He, he might roll his sleeves up at a... At a party, and we we've got examples of people like the Lord Lonsdale doing that, you know, rolling up his sleeves for to the, the, the light of his party guests. Mm. But um, of course, in the fifties, if your if your skin's on display, it's really going to be people who are doing manual labour of certain kinds, right? So it's only people whose skins you see that you associate with tattooing, and I think that is part of this class um, uh, sense. There's this sense that tattooing is restricted to a certain class is really just a problem of. Of visibility. That makes so much sense. Um, I don't know why I never thought of it that way. Yeah. And I, you know, if you if you sort of try and find you know, images of tattooing in the history of art, um, you know, in painting, and there aren't many, but there are a few. The, the ones that we can see are always on, you know, sailors or or or, or working men um, or um, prostitutes or sex working women, because um, they're the women and men who have their bodies on display for for the history of art. If you're a kind of you know, as I said, if you're the king, if you're if you're the king and you're having your portrait taken, you're not having or your portrait painted, you're not having your sleeves rolled up. So that all of that kind of aristocratic middle class, even kind of you know more general vernacular tattoo practice, is kind of invisible. I think um, has been invisible, you know, until myself and others have been doing the work to try and make it a bit more visible. You know, yeah. Well, I'm going to um, I'm going to what I'll do is link to. Um the exhibition that's coming up again, the the, the next iteration yeah. of it. So anyone can go there. We'll link to that on the, at um, artuk.org. Um, and, and I guess we'll leave it here for today. But I, I think I, I feel like with all of these episodes, I'd like to revisit each of them with a more specific <laughs> focus for each one because it's been so interesting yeah. doing these. Thank, uh, you. thank you. Yes, thank you so much for your time today.
Thank you. So yeah, we're on we're on a tour. So tour Abbey third of March until third of June, and then after that, we're, the exhibition's going to the um, National Museum of the Royal Navy in Portsmouth. Oh, perfect. Um, and then for the following sort of two or three years, it's going to be around the country. So um, keep your eyes peeled, I guess, for um, British Chateau Art Revealed because you know um, I hope it will be interesting to people. Some of these stories we've touched upon are going to be. Um, told in a bit more detail yeah definitely it's a different it's a different way of looking at something that you see every day and just maybe don't give the kind of the the depth of thought that it it warrants so it's really good to Mm. have this kind of conversation with you so everyone please head over to ruk.org slash about slash art dash matters i know it's long but please go there um (laughs) there's also a little survey that we'd like you to fill out just so we can find out a little bit more about you if that's okay Um, Thank you so much, Matt. And thank you everyone for listening today. And please check in with us again for another episode of Art Matters.